I'm Sarah Whitmire, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Tamara Keith. Tamara has known since she was a child she would end up in journalism. She was truly an NPR baby, listening to the likes of Nina Totenberg and Carl Castle while riding in her car seat. Since 2009, Tamara has worked as an NPR correspondent. She began as a business reporter and now covers Congress. Tamara, thanks for joining me this week on Profiles. Very glad to be here. And I want to jump right in and just find out how you got started in journalism. Well, uh, <laughs> the, the um, you know, aside from the occasional school newspaper and, and yearbook type of thing, um, when I was a junior in high school, I decided I wanted to write a column for my local newspaper. So I just sort of showed up. And it was a small town and, and said, I'm going to write a column. And and they were like, OK. And then that summer, uh, my family was doing this big cross-country drive. I grew up in California. We were driving all the way across the country, looping back around, going through Washington, D.C. And so I sent some copies of my column and – letters uh, to every NPR personality I could think of. You know, I listened most on the weekends when we were strapped in going to church. And so I I sent letters mostly to the weekend people. I I spelled Carl Castle's name like a castle. I I spelled everything. I know I spelled Leanne Hansen's name wrong. And basically I said, here I am. I want to work for NPR when I grow up. Uh, And I, you know, maybe you guys could give me some advice about college. I need to apply to college and stuff. Uh, And shockingly, people responded. The actual personalities? Yes. No, I I checked the answering machine and there was a message from Cokie Roberts. What? (laughs) (laughs) And, And Cokie said, don't major in communications. I'll tell you more later. Now, I never reached her, but uh, I I did – I did take that to heart because she seemed really serious about it. Uh, And then um, Scott Simon responded and said, well, while you're in Washington, why don't you and your family come over and meet me at my apartment and we can talk? You're kidding. No. You were just a random high school student. Yes. Random high school kid. And so my family went to Scott Simon's apartment at the Watergate and – Sat there and talked to him for probably an hour and a half at least. It, it was amazing. It was so exciting. And at one point, you actually began contributing to Weekend Edition Sunday. Exactly. A third person responded, This is which is crazy. <laughs> I guess not that many kids send letters to NPR personalities <laughs> or something. Uh, so um, Leanne Hansen responded and said, well, why don't you talk to the senior producer of Weekend Edition Sunday, a guy named Greg Smith, and um, – he invited us to NPR and gave us a tour and, and asked if I wanted to be a teen essayist. Uh, and and I guess they had been looking for a teen voice for their show. And then I showed up. Uh, so that that started after that. I, I think my first essay was about not knowing what to wear on the first day of school for my senior year of high school. How how were those essays written and edited and chosen? What was that process like for a young kid? It, you know, it was very much like uh, my job now in some ways. I would come up with several pitch ideas, several ideas for, for essays, and then I would call Greg. I, I would get up 
This is so ridiculous. I I would get up at like 4.30 in the morning so that I could call him at 5 right when he would get to work So because I knew that he wasn't busy then. And so I'd call him and and pitch my ideas and I and I had a strategy, you know, I'd have one pitch that wasn't very good and a couple that were better so that maybe, you know, if I was lucky he'd say yes to both of the good ones, but at least he'd say yes to one of them. And and then I'd write my essay and usually it would be too long and and we'd edit it down and we'd do several edits and then um and then I'd have to drive to the big city to go to a studio to voice it. Wow, you were on national radio in high school. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. They must have picked up on the fact that you were really driven <laughs> or something. <laughs> or something. I, I, don't know, I don't know what it was, but it was a, an incredible experience, you know, working with this national caliber, you know, national level editor, learning how to write and learning how to condense my thoughts into, into a radio type voice. It was um, formative. I assume things aren't like that now. Or are they? Uh, what do you mean? In terms of the access to, I guess, going to Scott Simon's apartment if you're a random high school student. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he still uh, <laughs> takes people under his wing. Actually, I know he still really? occasionally takes people under his wing. And and certainly, you know, I I try to return the favor whenever possible. Uh, and and when people reach out to me and want want advice, I give it. But you know it's a it's a long and windy road. Yeah. You know I um, started doing essays for NPR when I was fifteen, and I didn't become a reporter for NPR until I was thirty. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about how you made it from the fifteen-year-old to the thirty-year-old working at NPR. But I heard a story, or maybe I read it on one of your bios, that you actually graduated high school. Early, so I don't think you were your average kid. <laughs> well, I, basically, I did not love high school, and I did the math and realized I didn't need to be there for four years. That the senior year is kind of a throwaway, and so I started taking extra classes and um, before school and after school so that I could graduate in three years. And they let you do that. They did. I, I, I like to say that I wasn't smart. I just figured out how to work the system. <laughs> I don't know if <laughs> You know, true. like kids who skip grades in elementary school, it's because they're gifted. Kids who skip a grade in high school, I think it's just because I knew how to, how to work it. And then you went to college right away. I did. And? And I did that in three years too. So you were how old and then working on your master's? I started my master's when I was 19. Which leads to a funny story about – because you were actually reporting in grad school. Yes. And you were assigned to cover a story at a bar one time or something? This was the very first day of grad school and the professor had uh, what he called the target of opportunity. He assigned us all to go to different places and find the story. And I, I still don't know whether – he was secretly just trying to out me as a sprout <laughs> or whether he he just had no idea. But, of course, I get assigned to go to a bar and I had to say, um, I don't think I can get in there. <laughs> so he ended up sending me to a pier. A pier. Yeah. Right. Do you remember what you you wrote about? Uh, fishing. Fishing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I want to fast forward then. After grad school, how did you get started in the industry? What was your – first step? Oh, well, so it was actually when I was in undergrad, um, around the time I stopped doing essays for NPR because, well, I wasn't much of a teenager anymore. You know, 
I think I got boring. <laughs> I I got an internship at the at the local member station in in San Francisco KQED, and so I started interning there, and uh, and then I just kind of never left. Okay. And so when I was in grad school, uh, a job opened up directing the the morning the statewide news show. The and so I actually once again with the early call, I started. Um, Directing this show, I'd I'd go to work from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. every day, and then I'd go to school. Wow! <laughs> and then after graduation, uh, they they got a grant to open a bureau in in Fresno, which is sort of an agricultural area to the south of of the Bay Area. And um, and I don't know how I got the job. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, but there I was opening a bureau, <laughs> and. Uh, I feel very lucky that I that I had the chance. Looking back on that, do you think I had no idea what I was doing? Oh no, no? I kind of knew what I was doing. Did you <laughs> at least a little bit? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What sort of stories did you do there in Fresno? Uh, you know, um, there was a, a a lot of stories about agriculture and and actually a lot of stories about the environment. Uh, it was a time when. You know, Los Angeles has this reputation for horrible smog and horrible air, and what. I discovered and what people in the region were discovering is that actually the air quality in this, you know, bucolic agricultural central valley, the air quality was worse there than it was in LA. Really? And so I did a lot of reporting on on air quality and what they were trying to do to to deal with that. Uh and also reporting about poverty issues um because it's it's immense. I mean, 15% unemployment is not unheard of in some of these smaller towns. And uh, that was regardless of any recession. That That's mm. just the norm. Wow. And after you spent time in San Francisco, did you go to Ohio? What was <laughs> next? I'm trying to figure out your career path here. Yeah. <laughs> Help me out. <laughs> and, and, and the Ohio thing was um, I was following love. So you just picked up and moved to Ohio? Yeah. I um my my husband now uh boyfriend at the time uh is a veterinarian and he uh got an internship at the Ohio State University which mm. is a uh a very good internship an excellent program and so he was moving to Ohio and I said all right I'll go and so, you so left your job. I quit my job which was a pretty good job and um went to Ohio with basically no, no good plan but it just it worked out. It um I I <laughs> I feel incredibly lucky that the times that I have moved for love have have actually turned out really well for me career wise. Uh, because th- it was it was 2004 in Ohio. There was there was this little battleground state thing, uh, and uh, I ended up being able to cover the the presidential election. Well, that's neat. on the ground in in the state that ended up deciding the whole thing. You and I were probably reporting at the same time in Ohio. So <laughs> I great. was I was started in '03, covering <laughs> a lot of the presidential candidates that's great. coming through. Yeah, that's funny. We may have bumped into each other. We probably did. We were probably <laughs> on a riser somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So how did you end up? I I assume following love maybe again is how you ended up in D.C. Yes. With NPR. Yes. Uh, we went back to California first, and we were there for another three years. Did you get your old job back? No, I didn't no. get my old job back. Uh, <laughs> um, I ended up having two jobs in that time, in in part because I was I was I started out doing politics, covering Arnold Schwarzenegger when I came back, which was a ton wow. of fun. 
And then I um, got tired of the, the, the political rat race. Really? And I ended up deciding to go back to KQED and do more regional coverage. I, it, it was a... Uh, it was a good time. I got to work with a lot of really awesome people. And uh, and then I followed love again <laughs> uh, because my husband uh, got a job doing cancer research at the National Institutes of Health. And it just seemed like the right thing to do. And, and obviously, D.C. is where NPR is. So it, it's not like we were moving to a place that was potentially bad. But I cried my way across the country. I was convinced that that we had we'd done it we we were destroying we were destroying my career <laughs> were you married at that point yes we were, were married we'd been married for probably 3 years okay okay so when you went to dc you didn't have an offer in the bag or anything <sighs> no no oh no so how did you how did you end up starting then at npr in 09 I actually started there in 08 and it's a, it's a long okay, it's I'm a sorry. long no it's a long and winding road. I didn't get hired until 09, but uh I started as a temp. Oh, okay. Um and and what what happened is, you know, I had been doing stories like like lots of people do uh at the local level. I had been doing stories for NPR or, you know, if there's a big wildfire or something, they'd be like, "Oh, Tamara, you're going to be there anyway. Can you do something for us?" So they knew me. Uh and then I I did keep calling and emailing and saying, hi, I'll be showing up soon. Wink, wink. <laughs> but something comes open. Right. And and while we were driving cross-country, the financial crisis really blew up. And uh, I sent another one of my emails probably saying, you know, I'm, I'm in Iowa getting closer. <laughs> and the response I got back was, let's talk. How do you feel about business? Hmm. Perfect timing. And I said, well, you know, I have done some stuff about foreclosures. So I got thrown into basically being a reporter for NPR covering the financial crisis, which there's no way I could have anticipated that. Yeah. How how do you tell those stories when it's something that just slogs on day after day? How do you right. find a new angle? Oh, and and at the beginning – Every day there was a new angle because it was just one domino falling after another. But then it it did. It just started to drag on and every month there's another mediocre jobs report or, oh, look, here's another piece of economic data that looks really mediocre. Or, um, I, you know, at one point I did a story that – what was it? It was less bad may actually be good. You know, like <laughs> – Oh, my. <laughs> It was it was that you know how many times do we have to say green shoots uh <laughs> a lot it turns out and ultimately what i ended up doing that i'm incredibly proud of is this project called the road back to work which you know i had been reporting on unemployment for 2 years or at least a year and a half when this started and every month you sort of do the obligatory find a sad unemployed person get them to say something sad, and then talk to an economist. And every month it felt the same. And I felt like in some ways, I mean, the people's stories were very important, but there there wasn't enough. Um, and so a little more than a year ago, I uh, I guess it was, yeah, I how long ago was it? Yeah, about a year and a half ago. I hatched this plan <laughs> that my editor at the time thought was completely 
crazy. But he was like, all right, well, if you can if you can make this happen, then you can do it. Um, I gave recording devices, lent recording devices to six people who were unemployed and searching for work at the start of 2011. And they kept audio diaries for a year. That's cool. And by doing that, we were able to not just just drop in and say, oh, look, they're sad, but get into how it was affecting their families, their self-esteem, their – and then when they did start finding work, they were settling for less. They're, you know, the numbers didn't actually tell the whole story. And by being able to hear these six people's experiences, I feel like we got a much better sense of the whole story and and – it's not real pretty. I mean, even even the triumphs, the great news, the I got a job. Well, maybe they don't have insurance or they're not doing what they were doing before. Or I mean, it was it was a really wrenching process. But the reality is that so many people are going through the same thing uh, that I, I feel like it was important. And I feel like the people involved with the series felt like it was important to, to share that. Yeah. I think you're hitting on something which I think is a reason so many people love NPR, and that's that you just get behind the headlines and you find these interesting people and tell their stories. I'm wondering if you got that kind of feedback about that series. Absolutely. You know, the comments that came in from listeners and, and emails and and le- actual physical letters and and also the comments on the website, a lot of people said, you know, thank you. Yeah. Like, Thank you for sharing this. You're telling my story and and nobody else really was. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I feel like really I feel lucky that I work at a place that would, <laughs> one, let me have all these recorders. <laughs> and I did get them all back. That's good. Uh, were they all working? And they were all working. Uh, and, and just that I worked at a place that would give me the time. I mean there were hundreds of hours of tape. I, I have – Luckily, we had interns, um, but who helped transcribe it. But the stack of transcripts is probably six inches high. Wow! And and I was so glad I had those transcripts because trends would start to emerge. And you know, an experience that some somebody had in April, another person was having in June, and another person was having in December. And suddenly, that's a story about about an, a shared experience. But I was going back to the tape from April and the tape from June to bring it all together. When you do stories like that, do you stay in touch with the people? Absolutely. You do? Absolutely. Is that hard for you sometimes as, as a journalist? I mean, you, you didn't think twice about your response. But but if there should be more of a professional line there that you maybe you don't cross. I don't know. I'm just wondering. I think there is a professional line. Okay. But it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm I'm a cold, uncaring person. I, you know, I... I you 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 spend a year checking in with people every couple of weeks and and listening to their intimate moments on tape. Um, you want to know how they're doing, yeah. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Even though the series has been over for several months, I, I think that there is a line. I think that you don't necessarily want to become best friends with all of your sources that you've ever worked with, but I think that staying in touch is is quite valuable um, on a personal level, but also journalistically. 
um, because you you learn things. Um, you know, there's a woman who I interviewed for a story probably two and a half years ago about a job retraining program in Michigan. And I stay in touch with her. And what I've learned from that is that she's still still trying to make it work in this new career. And and it makes me think, well, maybe there maybe there's a story there about how how long the recovery takes and and you know more follow ups to be done. I think that by staying in touch, you actually bring more depth to the to the stories. Yeah, and I'm sure as someone like you, who's you just seem incredibly busy, <laughs> it enables you to sort of have people on the ground too who can who can keep you informed on what it's like to be out living this. Right, and and <laughs> I will say that Washington D.C. it's a great place, but it is a bubble. Yeah. It is it is a universe unto itself, and it's really important to find a way to connect outside of the bubble. Otherwise, you just you, you might think that the you know in, in the greater Washington area there are pockets where unemployment is an issue, but generally speaking, everybody is making ridiculous amounts of money. Yeah. Every, you know, everybody has brand new nice cars. You know, they're putting their kids in private school. It's not hmm. normal America. It's not real America. Um, and it's really important as as a reporter covering the nation to actually know what's happening in places that are not a bubble. I think our listeners will appreciate you saying that because that is a criticism I have heard of NPR is that sometimes they struggle to get outside of the beltway. Right. Is what people say. So do you find yourself traveling a lot for work then to do those kind of stories? I do. I travel quite a bit. Um, and also I, I have been following some of the campaigns, which means going to multiple states in one day and, and seeing the inside of a gymnasium that could be the inside of a gym, gymnasium in any state. Uh, but yes, there is a, a fair bit of travel. Uh and, and you know, I, I like to go to Walmart when I'm out traveling, you know. Like, and people at Walmart. You do. And, and you learn stuff. And, um, and it's cheaper. And I'm sure there are lots of NPR listeners who are going to just, like, think I'm the worst person on earth for even stepping foot in a Walmart. But, I, you know, it's and, – and that's part of my upbringing, too, you know, when – I grew up in a relatively small town in California in an agricultural area. And when Walmart came to town, that was like the biggest thing that happened for years. Yeah. And I actually went on a date in high school to Walmart. What? <laughs> it, I will say it, it didn't go anywhere. It was not the, not wasn't the most... your husband you chased across the country. No, definitely not. But, yeah, you know, I, I just – I feel like it's um, – I think that there's a lot of value in, in not being of the Beltway. I should say now you don't you don't cover business and the economy anymore. You're now covering Congress. So what was that switch like? <laughs> um, you know, it, it, in some ways it was like coming home because I had done politics in California and I had covered that presidential race in, in Ohio uh, back in 2004. It um, It kind of surprised me. I wasn't – I hadn't – been thinking, oh, I really want to get out of business and I really want to get into politics. And and then um, this job opened up and one of the editors from the Washington desk sent me an email and was just like, oh, you know, I just want you to take note that this is open. And I wrote back 
I guess a little more quickly than I <laughs> than I thought I would. <laughs> <laughs> you were you were ready to move on and try something new. I well, I don't know if I was consciously ready. But apparently I was subconsciously ready because I responded really quickly and it was taken as a sign that I was I was really interested. Uh and and the more I thought about it, the more I was really interested. And yeah. and I've you know, from the time I was a, like early teens, like from the time I was like probably 12 or 13, I I have always wanted to cover a presidential race. Um and I'm closer now to that than I've ever been. Yeah. I, I'm wondering with with that, it seems so interesting that you go from covering politics, though, on a state level to covering it in D.C. where it's just this hub of activity. I mean, what is that like to be a part of that on a daily basis to know that's where you're going to work? It, it, it's what a, it's um it's kind of daunting when you walk up to the building. I mean, I actually work in the nation's that's capital, amazing. you know, under the dome uh, and. <laughs> And and part of the you know you walk up that hill and there it is and and there you know there are senators walking in the hallways or members of Congress and um, it's if you if you step back and think about it it's like pretty crazy that you have that kind of access you can just go anywhere like this my badge I can go anywhere <laughs> and and that's pretty neat yeah it's incredible I I'm quite envious I must say. Um, I, I will tell you, there's a lot of walking. You have to wear a suit. You have to wear closed-toed shoes. Everybody wears heels as a woman. There, all there those are, rules still. Yes. A, a strict dress code. Absolutely. Well, to get into certain places. Um, so, you know, it's not all easy. <laughs> it's not all glorious. How do you develop sources? Um, <laughs> I'm on still Captain. working on that. <laughs> you know, it, it takes time. It really does. Um, and... You know, part of it is taking people out to coffee and or, well, going Dutch out to coffee. Uh, and and part of it is, um, you know, just showing up and, talk, you know, being in those hallways and saying hi to people and and eventually it builds. But it's not uh, it's not easy. Yeah. Uh, and, and I've got a lot of work to do still on that. <laughs> and how long have you been covering Congress now? Only since August. Okay. And in that time, I've also finished my Road Back to Work series and also, uh, you know, I've been out on the campaign trail a lot. Uh, so I feel like I, I'm not fully immersed yet. And it's just so confusing. There are all of these sort of small procedural things and and – it just it's just amazing. Like every time you learn every time there's a, a big fight or a, or a new bill, you learn something new about how that place works. And I think it it truly takes years. And and so what I do when I am slightly confused, uh, I, I check in a lot with David Welna, who is a congressional correspondent who has been doing this for 10 years and is an institution. And uh, and he's he is such an asset uh, to to be able to work with. When you're when you're talking about something as complicated as the health care as the health care bill, how how do you even decide what angle you're going to take on something that massive? I'm always looking for the surprise. I'm always looking for the hey, that's not what I was expecting. <laughs> uh, 
and and so that that's usually where I find my angle is or that's the thing I want to highlight. The thing that I want my people to take away from my story is is the same thing that I'd come home and tell my husband or I'd call and tell my parents or my brother. How much freedom do you have in selecting your stories each day? You know, it's a real mix. Uh, obviously, sometimes I get assignments and sometimes I pitch stuff. Sometimes I pitch stuff and then I regret it. <laughs> it ends up being, being more complicated than I thought it would be. Like, for instance, that healthcare story I did. Um, it, so it's um, it's a real mix. Uh, I you know I'm I'm here in Indiana and I really really wanted to do a story about the uh, the Senate race and so I I begged to do that one. Um, and and then other times, you know, a story that I had that aired yesterday, uh, it was it was an assignment, and and then I figured out how to make it my own. I do want to talk quickly just about some music that you brought with you, <laughs> um, and I think it's so funny because I think you and I um, know about as much about music as. <laughs> I don't know. We we don't know a lot about music. <laughs> so it was pretty funny. Um, but the one song you brought with you was Going the Distance by Cake. And I have to ask, is this a workout song? <laughs> it's on my iPod to run to. It is, it is on my iPod to run to. This is true. Uh, th- there are several reasons for choosing this one, though. Um, it uh, It is definitely a highly motivational song. It really gets me going when I, you know, I, when I'm doing a half marathon or that one marathon I did, when you get towards the end and it's like really tough and you don't know if you're going to make it, I, I will pull my iPhone out of my pocket and just like blare that song and sing it while I'm running. Uh, (laughs) But also Cake is a a band from Sacramento where uh, I lived for several years and, and one of my favorite bands. Uh, even yeah, I mean it's not like an obscure band. It's not like a real hip thing to say that Cake is one of your favorite <laughs> bands. But Cake is one of my favorite bands. And I'll also, I, I feel like that 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 sort of going the distance. I, I just feel like so much of the time I'm traveling and and going a great distance uh, that I, I think it fits. Reluctantly crouched at the starting line. Engines pumping and thumping in time. The green light flashes, the flags go up. Churning and burning, they yearn for the cup. They deftly maneuver and muscle for rank. Fuel burning fast on an empty tank. Reckless and wild, they pour through the turns. Their prowess is potent and secretly stern. As they speed through the finish, the flags go down. The fans get up and they get out of town. The arena is empty, except for one man still driving and striving as fast as he can. The sun has gone down and the moon has come up. And long ago somebody left with the cup. But he's driving and striving and hugging the turns and thinking of someone for Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. So we've been speaking with Tamara Keith, and I'm Sarah Whitmire for Profiles. 
Since 2009, Tamara has worked as an NPR correspondent. She began as a business reporter and now covers Congress. How do you find time to run and train for marathons as much as you work? (laughs) Well, I will say that since starting this congressional job, it's all been downhill (laughs) because I am working a lot. Uh, But, you know, I try to get up early. Uh, and and do it in the morning. Though, you know, when you're covering a vote that goes until midnight, you don't want to get up at six in the morning and go running or five in the morning and go running. So uh, it has suffered. Uh, but I, uh, I'm i still working on it. And I, just, I do love to run. I just love to get out into Rock Creek Park and and be amongst the trees and the deer and just, you know, run. Which half marathons or you've mentioned a marathon have you done? <laughs> well, I, I did the Marine Corps Marathon in 2010 uh, and ended up – I actually got a stress fracture while I was training. Oh, gosh. But it was like on my longest training run and I, I just I just didn't want to do all that training for nothing. So I did the race anyway um, and it was somewhat unpleasant. <laughs> I would imagine. I mean it was great because – there's there's so many people who come out to watch that race and there's so many inspiring people, wounded warriors running that race. And it's just amazing. And, you know, people along the sidelines will give you a high five if you need it. I, I got a cold like two days later. I think I high fived way too many small children <laughs> <laughs> doing the race. Uh, but um, I've done a ton of half marathons, just a ton. Good um, for you. And I, I just I enjoy it. And, and it's a chance to spend time with my friends. And yeah, that's so great. That's really neat. Now, when you were talking about your back to work series, that took you a long time to do. But I, I'm wondering, with just your daily reporting, it, well, is it daily? I guess first of all, how much time do you really spend on one of these pieces we might hear during Morning Edition? You know, it depends. There, there's sort of two different tracks. There's the um, you come in at 9 a.m. and there's news breaking out and. You're going to have four minutes on All Things Considered. And so, you know. Go. Make it happen. (laughs) Yeah. You know, six hours, whatever it is, you make it happen. Uh, And then um, there are stories that I work on for weeks. Now, I'm also doing a lot of other stuff at the same time. It's incredibly rare to just work for days and days and days on a story without also working on some other stuff. And, and you know, we have our newscast at the top of the hour and the bottom of the hour, and we um, – and those are news spots. And um, and I'm – I often file at least one or two of those every day. But – and that's just sort of like – you know, it takes work and it takes reporting. Uh, but that – that you just – you just throw that on top. It's like the chips. Yeah. I, I – <laughs> I think it's so interesting with our listeners because I, I, I just think the workings of it, they don't understand what it takes to even produce one of those spots. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, just one of those little spots that you would put into a newscast, how much time does something like that take you? Ten minutes? Half hour? I, I wish it took ten minutes. <laughs> no, it takes, it takes more than ten minutes. You know, it, it kind of depends. You know, sometimes you're watching a hearing and it's – you know, it's not big enough news to do a four-minute piece, but you watch the whole hearing and then you do a 45-second news spot. Now, yeah. it may take you 15 minutes to pull the cut and write the spot, but you've just spent three hours watching a hearing. <laughs> Gathering your tape. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and then there are other times where it, it really is just as simple as, you know, some sort of edict comes down and you just write it up. 
and and it's very fast. Um, so be, generally, I, I like to have those take about 20 minutes, but sometimes, you know, the actual reporting part takes a very long time. Right, right. What's your absolute favorite part about your job? Oh, my. I, I do love being empowered to ask questions and just being allowed to be there wherever there is. It's like a special all-access pass uh, to parts of American life that a lot of people don't get access to. And and I think that's very cool. I, I like to <laughs> I like to say that having that microphone makes me magical or something because I, although it, you're, no one will believe this, I'm uh, I'm actually relatively shy, and I don't really like I I don't like parties or things where you just have to like talk to people because I just find that really tough. But when I have that microphone, I'm not afraid, and that's pretty cool. It's so funny. That's we have a lot of students in our newsroom, and that's what I always tell them is that when you have a microphone, it's like all of a sudden you have power. And people will talk to you just because you have a microphone. It's this amazing thing that I don't understand. Right. It's like a cape without the cape. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to follow that with what's your least favorite part? What could you never do again at NPR and be happy about? Oh, um, (laughs) I I really dislike man-on-the-street interviews. Oh, yeah? I hate it. And and you would think that, oh, I'm powerful with that microphone. Sure, yeah. um, But – I have just had numerous things that make it not fun. One, you're like just like standing out there and then you're like, oh, 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 please talk to me. Please talk to me. And and it's just tough. And and they do have value sometimes. But other times it's just like who's to say that this random person is better than that random person or – so it it becomes uh you know I've been run out of parking lots recently um <laughs> covering <laughs> I was I was trying to do man on the street interviews to get the mood of Ohio voters and I oh, was okay. run out of a strip mall parking lot which is just frustrating and embarrassing and <laughs> and usually you have to do it outside which and nobody actually people don't actually want to talk to you. It's it's, And then I, on more than one occasion I've had, and this is completely ridiculous, guys think I'm flirting with them. And and it's like, no, really? I'm just desperate to get tape. And you have on your headphones and I have, your microphone. Yes, I have my headphones <laughs> and my microphone. And, and no, I'm not flirting with you. <laughs> that is really funny. Wow. Wow. Um, what what sort of sacrifices have you made for your career? I don't I don't know. I, I don't feel like I've sacrificed anything. Yeah. Um That's a perfectly I, yeah. fine answer. No. I don't, I don't think I have. I mean, I I I'm a very lucky person because I have a husband who who I mean, we've been together for like a century. Um and <laughs> He he's as much of a ridiculous overworking overachiever as I am. And so we complement each other quite well. We we understand. Um and and he he lets me get away with working some ridiculous hours and uh and I'm very thankful for that. What's next for you in in your career? 
I uh, I'm enjoying this Congress thing. I want to get I want to get good at it. Um, and I hope I get to do continue to do more campaign stuff and more more um, presidential coverage. And I, you know, I'm I'm just enjoying the ride. I mean, I can't believe that I get to do what I get to do. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> you just want to pinch yourself. I'm sure. Yeah. It's uh, I just feel so lucky. I'm sure the level of editors you work with has got to be incredible, too. What is that process like? Do you in second part of that? Do you feel like each day you get a little bit better at your job because of these amazing people you're surrounded by? Mm -hmm. We have a new editor uh, who edits our congressional coverage. His name is S.V. Date. And uh, he has written multiple novels Wow. He has written a, a very good and uh, well-respected book about Jeb Bush. He He's a rock star, and yet he's my editor. I feel so lucky that I get to work with someone like him. And, you know, he's he's a total nerd for um, campaign finance data and, and, and database work. And, and he'll just be like, hey, look what I found. And... It just adds a wonderful dimension to to the reporting that we're able to do that that we have editors like this and you know Ron Elving is, who who is on the air a lot he I, he's just great I mean they're all so great um, and and also the colleagues that I have not just the bosses and the editors but you know getting to work with Don Gagne and and just like learn how he does what he does or Ari Shapiro and Scott Horsley who who cover the White House and are just they are machines. They know how to turn around a story so quickly and and something so good. Uh, and and just just watch and, you know, Peter Overby, who covers campaign finance and and just being able to go to these people and say, hey, I'm working on this. What do you think? Um, Andrea Seabrook, David Wellnight. I mean, it just <laughs> I can't believe I'm one of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's really – I know for me as a reporter, one of the greatest things is working with those NPR editors. Our bureau chief is Ken Barkas. Oh, he's great. Isn't he amazing? Yes. He's absolutely incredible. But I think for me the best thing is that I become a better reporter mm-hmm. each time I work with him. And and I think that part of that is is your approach to it, is that your your willingness to learn and and desire to be better and – and certainly in my career, that's been the way I've thought about it all along. It's, this isn't some editor coming along to criticize me. This is an editor coming along to make me better. And gosh darn it, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really neat. What advice do you give to student journalists? Uh, mostly to work really, really hard. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it, you know, like if, if you want to do this – if you if you want to be a reporter for NPR or or CNN or if you if you want to if you want to go all the way then just you can't give up like you just have to keep pushing and working at it and and realize that when you start you may you may think you're good you may even be good but you're not as good as you're going to be <laughs> And, you know, like I go back and listen not very often because it's painful to the things I did when I was first starting out. And at the time, I thought they were pretty good and people told me it was good stuff. And now I listen to it. And I'm like, wow. Oh, ow. Ow. That's hard to listen to. 
Um, so it's just it's a long, hard process to mm. to get to a level, and I'm I'm not there yet. I'm not I'm not done growing by any stretch. Um, but I you know I think it's about patience and about really just being motivated and not giving up which is a tough lesson for somebody who's 18 or 22 and like wants it tomorrow and for some people i guess maybe it will happen overnight but not really it just it just takes a long time and that's okay that's great because by the time you do get to the point where you're on air or whatever it is you're that much better you won't make those ridiculous mistakes. Yeah, well, hopefully not too many of them. <laughs> <laughs> when I started, I was in Cincinnati, and my a really great mentor told me, you really don't want to make it here because all your friends and your family are all going to be listening, <laughs> and they're going to hear you. And that really stuck with me, and I thought yeah. that actually did make a lot of sense, and it seems like like you would agree. Yes, um, absolutely. Your parents and your friends, they still get excited to hear you? Yeah, oddly. <laughs> My parents, uh, they listen to everything I do, and they send me emails about everything <laughs> I do. Uh, <laughs> the novelty has not worn off. It hasn't worn off at all. It's amazing. Um, and, and, you know, like even – I'll just I'll be brushing my teeth and suddenly I come on the radio and I'm like, what? Huh? <laughs> do you listen or do you turn the station? Oh, I listen. Do you? Well, I just want to make sure it came out right. <laughs> See, I don't. I turn it. Oh, because, well, if something were wrong, I wouldn't be able to fix it. Then, then I feel powerless. That's true. I don't know. I, but the, I, I, there are ways that I can fix things from home. So I, you know, for future, you know, future feeds. Yeah. I, I just. um I'm just a little bit of a control freak about that, I guess. I used to find myself holding my breath <laughs> if I listen to myself. And it's, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. I do want to just talk briefly about the last song you picked, which I have to admit, because I know nothing about music, I didn't even know how to pronounce it at first. Miserlou? I think it's Miserlou. Miserlou. And this is from? Well, so this is uh... – this is from Dick Dale and his Deltones. I think it's his Deltones and not the Deltones. Um, and I first discovered this song. I mean, it's it's a very old song. It's not a new song. But it was on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. Uh, and I love, I still love, uh, years later, the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. I, I mean, that is just, Quentin Tarantino knows how to make a soundtrack. And all of his films have superb soundtracks. And that song is just pumps you up. Um, and I, I, I was in a band in high school and we played that song. Uh, <laughs> I was not on guitar. I was on bass guitar. It was significantly easier wow. than the guitar part. Uh, and, uh, and then more recently, the, um, the Black Eyed Peas have actually incorporated that song into really? uh, one of their – I guess it isn't that recent. Hits. Really? Huh. Yeah. <laughs> Both of the songs you picked are very high energy. I Yeah, I was feeling high energy, I guess, when I picked the music. <laughs> it seems fitting just having met you now. You seem very high energy. I, that's, I think, about all the time we have, Tamara. I appreciate you joining us today. Ab absolutely. It was, it was terrific to get to talk to you. This has been a lot of fun. So we've been speaking with Tamara Keith, and I'm Sarah Whitmire for Profiles. Thanks for listening.
The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2012. The technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.